At this time, I'd like to invite the kids to head out to Children's Church. Those who are ages 3 to kindergarten, 3 to 5, feel free to head back and join Miss Chris in the back for a wonderful Children's Church lesson and time together. And the rest of us may turn to Genesis chapter 11. The book of Genesis chapter 11, this is our last week in this Genesis series in the beginning. About eight years ago, when I first got here, we actually went through the story of Abraham, starting in Genesis, at the end of Genesis 11, and Genesis 12. So, if you want to know what happens next, you can go back and find those online. Or, better yet, just read your Bible. Next week, we'll start a, a two-part mini-series in Revelation 4 and 5, and worship as it is in heaven. And then later in the summer, we'll study the book of Malachi. So the, the, the theme for the summer will be a theme of worship. What does it mean to worship the Lord, both corporately and individually? And that'll be our focus for the summer. And then in the fall, we'll go into First Peter and talk through what it means and what it looks like to live as exiles in the world. So that's where we're headed. In the future, this morning, we're in Genesis chapter 11. We're going to cover verses 1 through 26, but I just want to read verses 1 through 9 now. So if you'd like, you may stand with me. As we read Genesis 11, 1 through 9, a familiar story for many of us. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. And then they said, come. Let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That's why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused their language, confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. You may be seated. Father, I'm excited to be here this morning because it is here where your people gather under your word, worshiping your name and not our own. And I pray that that will be the result of our time this morning and how we spend our time this morning praising you, learning you, knowing you, loving you. Help us to do that. Clear us from distraction, sharpen our hearts and minds, unite our spirits together in the praise of your name. Amen. I'm sure you know the story of Icarus. In Greek mythology, in the story, Icarus' father made him a pair of wax wings, giving him the power of flight so he could fly wherever he wanted. He could reach new and high places. But his father warned him not to fly too high. And of course, what did Icarus do? He flew too high, and the sun melted his wax wings, and he fell to his death. It is a warning against pride, a call to recognize 
our limitations as humans. We've been talking a lot about technology recently, and some of you may have been in Josh's class on technology and the dangers and opportunities of technology. I was talking with a few people this week about AI technology and what that could mean for us. The new AI technology, which is doing wonderful, crazy, weird things, AI-generated poems. You can have AI generate school assignments, though our students would never do that. You can have AI generate sermons, though your pastor would never do that. AI could, AI has the ability to speak to itself and seemingly learn, have conversations, formulate images and videos, solve problems, accomplish administrative tasks. Who knows what AI might bring for us, what advantages it could bring, but also maybe it might just spell our doom. You know, if, if, you've, if you were raised on science fiction movies like I was, like Terminator or AI, the possibilities of what AI might do are kind of frightening. Could it become sentient? Could it be the unraveling of humanity? Artificial intelligence kind of doing its own thing out of our control. So it's easy to, to get in the fear, fearful place of how could this ruin us, what we've created? And then I turn back to Genesis 11 and I'm comforted. Because what Genesis 11 teaches us is that there, there's nothing we can do, no power we have, that can thwart God's plan for this world. God knows how to keep humanity in check. And we see this from the very beginning. His plan for humanity, his promise, will prevail. There's nothing humanity can do, good or bad, that can stop God's plan for all creation. God has a plan of life and thriving for his world and for his people, and nothing's going to get in the way of that, not even us. So I'd say it this way, no height of human sin can stop God's plan for this world. No height of our sin, no amount of pride, no amount of rebellion, nothing we do can stop or get in the way of, can derail God's plan for this world. He will accomplish what he has set out to accomplish, and he will do so not uh, outside of humanity, not because of humanity, but really in spite of and despite humanity, he will work through us and accomplish his plan for this world. No height of human sin can stop it. You see that in this story, the Tower of Babel. I'm going to break it down in three scenes as we study this. The first scene, verses 1 through 4, here sin elevates. Sin is elevated, and sin elevates the humanity as they come together in proud rebellion. They puff themselves up. They, they heighten themselves against God. Sin elevates. Look at verse 1. I'll read it again. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. And they said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So we know the context. Noah and his three sons have come out of the ark. Then after that, as we talked about last week, we were given the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10. It's the spread of all people and all languages and cultures over the course of the whole earth. And then in the middle of that, the author of Genesis, Moses, says, well, let me tell you how this happened. How this uh, diversity of language and people came about. Where, where did it all start? And it started here as the people moved eastward and spoke in one language. By the way, if you're reading your Old Testament, especially the, the law, and you read they went east, that's usually a bad sign. 
That's just an indicator. Oh, that's not a good direction. East is going to Egypt, in biblical speak. When Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, they were cast out to the east of the garden. When Lot separates from Abraham, he goes east. When Jacob flees from his homeland, he goes east. So that's kind of a, a signifier. This is not going to go well. They're not in a good condition. All the people on the earth spoke one language, and they settled together in the plain of Shinar. And this is between the Tigris and the Euphrates. They settled in a land that would later be known as Babylon, is now modern-day Iraq. We've noted a bunch of times through this Genesis series that there are other creation stories from other cultures. The Babylonians and Mesopotamians had several different creation stories, and one of them, the Enuma Elish, has a similar story about the people building a tower. They make bricks, and then they build that tower out of bricks, and the top of the tower, according to that creation story, was a home for the gods, particularly the Babylonian god Marduk. They, they built a sanctuary for their gods. Here, this isn't a sanctuary for the gods. The tower that they make is this, a rebellion against God. It's for themselves. They make a city and a tower out of bricks. Say, come, let us make bricks. Build a tower. And when you think tower here, you shouldn't think like the stratosphere in Vegas or uh, Toronto has a huge Space Needle Tower, Seattle has one. Not that kind of tower, not a skyscraper, more like a ziggurat, if you know what that is. Kind of a rectangular, square, pyramid-like, layered. I think a couple kids made those out of Rice Krispie Treats in Sunday school this morning. So you can do that craft at home. Uh, a ziggurat. And that's what they were making. And they used bricks to make it. And that's actually kind of important, that note, that they, they made this out of bricks. In Israel, they had stone. And they would use that for building. But here, where they were in this valley, in this plain, there was no stone around. So through human creativity, human ingenuity, human technology, they make bricks. They learn how to harden clay and make bricks out of that. And they use tar for mortar. There are tar pits in that area. So what we have here is the development and implementation of new human technology. Here's human creativity and ingenuity and power at work. Humans getting together to create. And, and notice, they're united. All the world of one language in harmony with one another. The world has never been more united than at this point. All people united together, working towards the same cause. And what this shows us, that unity in and of itself is not inherently good. Well, we all get along on this. You might all get along in the wrong direction. Unity in its, on its own is not a good thing. We have to ask, what is the basis of unity? And the basis of unity here was rebellion. I say this all the time, and I want to repeat it, that just because something is popular, even universally approved, it does not mean it is right and good. Just because something is universally acknowledged doesn't mean it's right. So in our world today, in the U.S., I think we would probably assume, I haven't done the math on this, but I, I'm willing to bet if you take a survey of all American citizens and ask them, are there multiple ways to heaven? What do you think the popular answer would be? Yes. Is it the right answer? 
If we were to ask, is Jesus Christ the only way of salvation, the only hope for humanity, what would be the popular answer in our world? If we were to ask, are there multiple valid faiths, what would be the popular answer? If we were to ask, do we need to repent before God to avoid his judgment, what would be the popular answer? We don't go by the popular answer, right? Truth and righteousness are never determined by popular vote. They are always determined by what God has said. He determines what is right and good. Because here, the world popularly agrees this is a good idea to build this tower. They build it for three reasons. First is to reach the heavens, to just to see how high they could elevate themselves. Can we reach heaven on our own, by our own power and will? I've told this before, astronaut Yuri Gagarin was the first man to fly in outer space. I believe he was a Christian, a believer. But after that mission, Soviet Union Premier Nikita Khrushchev famously said, why are you clinging to God? Here Gagarin flew into space and didn't see God. The Soviet Premier Khrushchev, we, we went into space, we flew to the highest heights and we found no God there. It's an elevation of humanity. We reached the heights and did it without God. Which gets to the second reason they built the tower. What is the second reason there? It's in the text. To make a name for themselves. In other words, pride. We want to show how great we are, how wonderful and powerful humanity is. Going back to the beginning of Genesis, why were we created? How were we created? In whose image were we created? Isaiah 43, 7 says that God created us for his glory. We were created for God. We are created in his image to reflect him and who he is. But instead, the people of the Tower of Babylon to glorify themselves and make a name for themselves. If we're honest, we were all plagued by this kind of proud ambition in some way or another that desire to make a name for ourselves. Everybody wants to be known. It's a universal human condition to want to be known. I think it's also a universal condition to want to be known as something, to have a reputation. What do we want to be known as? I want to be known as wise. I want to be known as kind. I want to be known as humble. And there's a little contradiction there. I want to be known as a, a wonderful minister. I want to be known as smart and intelligent and lovable. What do we want to be known as? What do we work for, for our own reputation? As we think about our motivations and all that we do, whose name are we promoting? Why do we do what we do? I want people to know how wonderful I am. Young kids, those of you who are children, who are going up through school, this will be one of your challenges as you make your way into the world. You're going to struggle with, what's my reputation? How do other people know me? 
you're going to want people to like you. You're going to fear that people might not like you. We call it the fear of man. I want to tell you something that if you can adopt this from a young age, it'll help you in life. Spend your time worshiping the Lord and seeking his name. Don't spend time trying to get other people to worship your name. Wisdom for young and old. Don't waste your time trying to get people to worship your name. There's a proud ambition. It will not serve you. It will not help you. Instead of trying to get people to worship you, you will have much more joy in this life if you spend your energies worshiping the Lord in his name. We have to remind ourselves of this even in Christian ministry. Why do we do what we do? Whose name are we promoting? Are we going to promote the name of Community Bible Church? Or are we going to promote the name of Jesus Christ? That's why I want to raise up other people to preach. I shouldn't be the only person up here. Other people to lead. It's a warning sign for a church if it's built around one person. And this is just wandering into Aaron's opinion territory over here, but this is why I fundamentally have a problem with churches that are built off of video screens of one guy. And you build up little blocks across the nation where you go and you see that one guy. And I have to ask, who are we promoting? They say, but it works. To what end? We're gathering a lot of people. Around whom? And pride is a tricky thing. And all sorts of Christian things can be done in the name of pride and self-glorification. We have to actively work against it. Whose name are we promoting? There's a third reason they build the tower. You see what it is? Let's build this city and this tower. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. This is their fear. We're going to be scattered over the face of the earth. Instead, let's stay here in one spot and just build up. What was God's command to humanity? From the beginning, the cultural mandate, the first command for humanity, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Fill the earth with the image of God. Fill the earth with the praise of his name everywhere. What's the command given to Noah and his sons as they exit the ark? Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. That was the command given by God. Go fill the earth with my image bearers. So what do they say? Well, we don't want to do that. Let's stay and build here. They decide to do just the opposite of what God has said. Instead of filling the earth, they stay in one spot. Instead of spreading out, they build up. And their great fear is obedience to God. So from the very beginning, what we see is God has a mandate for humanity that they spread his glory across the earth. That never stops. 
that mandate is given. What is Jesus' mandate to his church before he ascends into heaven? His final mandate for his church. What does he tell them to do? You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This has always been God's plan to fill the earth with the praise and worship of his name. And it was in sinful, proud rebellion that people said, no, I think we'll just stop here. They have their own priorities building themselves up in mind. So do you want to know why I have a heart for CBC being a sending church that sends our sons and daughters out into the world? Not just keep them here where we can control them, but send them out for the worship and praise and evangelism of the name of Jesus. Why do we have that heart? Because I've opened the book and I've read it from the beginning that God's heart is to send his people out. So I'm asking who among us is ready, ready to go? You who are going into college, you who are graduating, why are you going there? It's not just for a career. It's not just to earn money. You are going. You are being sent. We are commissioning you today to go with the name of Jesus Christ. Worship on your lips because there is a world that needs to know Jesus and we have been commanded from the beginning not to stay and build internally but to spread out across the earth. It is a challenge from cover to cover the mandate of God and no amount of human sin or pride is going to get in the way of it. It will happen. God will make sure of it. Sin elevates, then God lowers. That's what happens in the next scene, verses 5 through 9. God lowers himself, and his people. But the Lord came down to see the city, the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language. They will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all, over all the earth and they stopped building the city. That's why it's called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. A couple days ago I saw an article stating that New York City is actually sinking. It's kind of fascinating. Studies have shown that New York City is sinking about one to two millimeters every year. Why? Because of the weight of how much they've built on top of it. According to the article, this trend is being magnified by the sheer bulk of New York City's built infrastructure. The researchers calculate that city structures, which include the famous Empire State Building and Chrysler Building, weigh a total of 1.68 trillion pounds, which is roughly equivalent to the weight of 140 million elephants. I don't know why that conversion is helpful or, or how that's illuminating. I can't picture 1.68 trillion pounds, but 140 million elephants, that I get. Um, what it shows is that there's a certain limit to their building capacity, right? It can't go on forever. God has a way of lowering things when needed. And we see that in his response to the Tower of Babel. In fact, first God lowers himself. I love the way this is worded. We know God is omniscient, right? We know God is omnipresent. He knows all. He sees everything. So this is not a surprise to him. 
But the text is very clear to say, he came down to see what was going on. Which is a way of saying, these humans were so impressed with their building. And God had to go, what is that that's going on down there? Had to get off his throne. Isaiah 40.22 says, he sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. So God gets down to see what this grasshopper work is all about. One commentator said, Yahweh must draw near, not because he is nearsighted, but because he dwells at such tremendous height and their work is so tiny. We know there are lots of reasons construction may be delayed. Could be a global pandemic that delays construction. It could be city planners and civil engineers who decide one more person needs to take a look at that. Uh, could be supply chain issues or funding. God finds a creative way to stop their work. He causes confusion among them. The other day in the car, my wife put on uh, Celtic music. I was not there, which is why this happened. Um, put on. <laughs> and our three-year-old responded, Mom, this is nonsense. We've been working on not making nonsense words at the house, and she's isolated. This is nonsense. I imagine that's what happened as they showed up to work one morning on the city and on the tower, and they said, well, this is, this is nonsense. What are you saying? We've been working together for years. We've always been close, and now you're speaking gibberish to me. What has gone on? It had to be very frustrating, all of a sudden, not being able to be understood by each other. And, but that's what happened. God caused that frustration. He brought confusion into them. In fact, that's what Babel means. It's confusion. In the Babylonian language, Babel means the gate of God. That's what they thought they were building. But it very much sounds like a Hebrew word for confusion. You think you're building the gate of God. What you're really going to do is you're going to settle in confusion. You're confused. And God stops the work. But why did he stop the work? He says, nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. That is the problem that God solves. If they have one language, if they're able to work together in unity, there's nothing that will stop them. They will have limitless human potential. And you say, well, why is that a problem? Why would limitless human potential, being able to do whatever we put our mind and heart to do, why would that be a problem? Wouldn't that be a great thing? If humanity, if we could do whatever we wanted to do, wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? If there weren't this thing called sin, it would be great. But because we are sinful people, whatever we put our heart and mind to do isn't always good. And if there were no limits and no checks and no balances on us, limitless human potential would be limitless sin and destruction and ruin on the earth. So God puts a stop to it to prevent infinite rebellion against him and the ruin of the earth. Sin needs to be cured if human potential is going to be a good thing. And God's grace here is discipline. Is God's grace and his kindness to humanity that he disciplines them and lowers them. Is that how you think of discipline in your own life? 
limits on you as God's grace for you that you don't reach all of your potential because all of your potential is not always good. You may wonder, how come I'm not more attractive? How come I don't have more say in my company or in my home? How come I don't have more power, more money? How come I don't have more abilities? Why do I have all these limitations? It may be that it is God's kindness upon you that you are limited. That that might be preventing you from total arrogance, total sin, total rebellion. That God in his kindness has given you limitation. Fanny Crosby, the famous hymn writer, was blind from childhood, in an operation in young childhood. She was blinded by it. and She was asked, I think from time to time, if she ever struggled with that or how she resolved that. And I don't have the exact quote, but her response was something along the lines of, it's a good thing because the first face that ever gladdens my sight will be the face of my Savior. It's a limitation upon her that she could be angry about, and I'm sure at times was but in the end sanctified her and made her like Christ. God's discipline can be a good thing. The restraints can be a good thing. And sometimes, especially when my kids are young, they rail against the seatbelt in the car and it's too tight. But it's good. And the restraint is a good thing for you. So before humanity can be unleashed in its power, they first need to be saved from sin, and God puts a restraint. He divides them by language. And with that different language comes different cultures, different geography, and people spread out and scatter like he intended. Their sin cannot stop God's plan for his glory to spread all over the world. Which brings us to, now, verse 10, this genealogy. I'm going to read the names. Is that okay? You can... Play along with me. It's always a fun game. Read Hebrew names. And again, I always say, I'm not pronouncing this correctly. None of us speak in the original dialect. I'm messing these up too. So we give our best shot. But in these names, the the point is that God's grace persists. Throughout sin, throughout the scattering of people, God's grace persists through humanity and sets up for his grace ultimately to win out in the end. While sin elevates, God lowers and grace persists all the way through. Verse 10. This is the account of Shem's family line. Two years after the flood, when Shem was 100 years old, he became the father of Arphaxad. After he became the father of Arphaxad, Shem lived 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arphaxad had lived 35 years, he became the father of Shelah. And after he became the father of Shelah, Arphaxad lived 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he became the father of Eber. And after he became the father of Eber, Shelah lived 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he became the father of Peleg. And after he became the father of Peleg, Eber lived 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he became the father of Reu. And after he became the father of Reu, Peleg lived 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Reu had lived 32 years, he became the father of Serug. And after he became the father of Serug, Reu lived 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Serug had lived 30 years, he became the father of Nahor. And after he became the father of Nahor, Serug lived 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he became the father of Terah. 
And after he became the father of Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and had other sons and daughters. And after Terah lived, had lived 70 years, he became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. So why is this here? We start with the family line of Shem. You remember from last week, the blessed child, the middle child, the one who has God's favor. And we're starting with Shem. We're following his line all the way down. There are a few, a few interesting things about this genealogy. There are ten generations from Adam to Noah listed, and there are ten generations from Noah and Shem down to Abram. Evenly split. Just fun fact for you. You'll notice the lifespan decreasing post-flood. Hundreds and hundreds of years down to about 118. Something happened <laughs> in the environment of the earth post-flood. That, and then the lifespans get to around normal by the time Abram comes around. Most men in this list have their kids in their 20s and 30s. Then all of a sudden, Terah has a child as he's 70, which may be preparing us for somebody having a child in old age. And of course, that takes us to Abram, and that's the real point of this genealogy. We go from Shem to Abram or Abraham. You'll notice that phrase repeated all throughout. They had other sons and daughters. We're not worried about them. We're focused on going from Shem down to Abraham. And why Abraham? Because God is going to do something special through Abraham. He's going to reverse Babel through Abraham. He's going to give his covenant, his plan, his promise to Abraham. And listen to what God promises to Abraham in Genesis 12. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Don't make a great name for yourself. I'll make your name great. I will bless all nations through you, Abraham, through your offspring. God's grace persists through all the scattered people, all the lines down to Abraham. And God will build his people from him. There will be opposition to God's promise and his blessing and his blessed people all the way. Babylon in scriptures will become a symbol of opposition to God's people. All the way back from Babel, Babylon will, be, it will represent the center of human opposition to God. Rome will be called Babylon. And here's the good news. Eventually, Babylon will fall. Isaiah 14, 13 says, Babylon, the jewel of kingdoms, the pride and glory of the Babylonians will be overthrown by God like Sodom and Gomorrah. And then in Revelation 18, before God makes the world perfect, an angel brings the news, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. This is the good news for us who are Abraham's children. If by faith in God you are one of God's people, here's the good news. Babylon will not win. Pride, rebellion, humanity opposed to God is fallen. 
and we'll lose in the end. And there will be days on this earth, and days are coming. It's why we're talking through First Peter in the fall. There are days coming where it will seem like Babylon is winning. And all around you will feel like everyone is opposed to God. And you'll see, if you live long enough, you'll see people who used to worship Jesus and praise the name of Jesus Christ with you falling to Babylon and opposing God. You'll see it with your own eyes. And you'll wonder... Where is this all headed? And the good news from the Tower of Babylon is that it will one day fall and nothing can stop God's plan of salvation. And he will win in the end. And how will he do it? Through the offspring of Abraham. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This child will draw all people to himself, people from all nations, will come to worship Jesus Christ, the child of Abraham. I never really noticed this in my scriptures before. I want to read a quote from John 11:51. A quote from, of all people, the high priest Caiaphas. He predicted this in John 11:51. He says, as high, or, as high priest that year, he prophesied, that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. He predicted that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. Jesus Christ would die humbly, Not proudly, he would humble himself. His name would be maligned, his reputation smeared, his body stricken, cursed by God on the cross. He would die. Why? To bring the scattered people of God back united together again. United under what? Not their own name, but united around the throne of Jesus Christ, worshiping his name forever and ever. And one day there will be full human unity again. And what God has scattered over the, all the earth, he will gather under one banner, one name, from different tribes, different peoples, different tongues, singing the name of Jesus Christ. It started in Acts 2, the reversal of Babylon, when people came to worship and found themselves hearing the name of Jesus Christ in their own tongue. And it will end in Revelation. We'll get there next week, and I'm excited for it. When Revelation 7 says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes. They had been sanctified and purified, cleansed from sin. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice. Do you hear that? Multitudes of people in a loud voice, a singular voice, a united voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The multitudes together as one singing the same song. Salvation belongs to our God. This is God's plan. No one can stop it. No height of human sin can get in the way of this. Jesus Christ will bring salvation to the nations, to the whole earth, and we will be united again in praise to his name. And you have a choice today. Which city will you be a part of? The city of the new Jerusalem, the offspring of Abraham, under the banner of Jesus Christ, 
or the city of Babylon that will fall. Would you pray with me? Father and God, we thank you for the confidence we have in your word from your word. Lord, help us today to follow our humble King Jesus who lowered himself for the salvation of others. May we delight, even rejoice in how you have lowered us and humbled us. And Lord, don't stop that work until the work is done that we may follow Jesus Christ faithfully and be around his throne in the end with eternal life. We pray for that for all our people, Lord, and pray that you would send us out with that message that there is a King Jesus who rules with humility and with power. Lord, steer us from Babylon, from our pride, from our arrogance, from our self-centeredness, May your name, in the name of your Son, be the banner and the flag that we wave. By your Spirit, for your glory. Amen.